This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And I started reading Lucy Sant's work. Oh, I don't even remember when Low Life came out. I was a baby bookseller, so I think I just dated myself. 91. Okay, 91. So the new book, your latest book, is called I Heard Her Call My Name, and it is beautiful. This book is gorgeous, and I love your sentences all over again. It's a little different. It's a little more personal. I mean, and I say this having read Factory of Facts, where you open with like 19 different versions of how your life could have Mm -hmm. started in Belgium. But I am going to ask you how it feels to have this book out in the world. Oh, I mean, I've been on pins and needles for 11 months now, which is how long it's been since I turned in the manuscript. And I am consumed by the wish to explain myself to every single person in the world. And this is the handy one-stop. So I just want everybody to read it so I don't have to stand in the supermarket aisle and declare everything that there is to declare. But also, you're still evolving. You make it really clear that transition is a process. And mm-hmm. this sort of alignment of inner and outer, like you're still figuring it out too. And you're very honest about some stuff that maybe you would have thought about differently. And as I was reading, I heard her call my name. I kept thinking about this piece that you had written in the New York Review of Books about collage and your love of collage. And mm-hmm. you're also a very analog kind of gal. And oh. you have a love of you have a love of the analog, right? Like collage is part of your thing. Music has always been part of your thing. I mean, you even say it in the new memoir that you're profoundly nostalgic for the analog era. And and I overlap yeah. with you in that analog era. But it was a piece of technology. It was an app, a photo app that sort of sets off I know. The new book. And can I ask you to tell a little bit of that story? Because I was like, really, an app? (laughs) An app, Lucy? (laughs) Well, you know, the fact is, I figured out just recently, like within the past few weeks, I finally figured out the mechanics of the process. So I had known about FaceApp. Mm -hmm. And I had an old phone. It wasn't really working with that. I got a new phone. And a few months into ownership, I thought, oh, right, FaceApp. Why didn't I try that again? So I tried it again. And this time, it returned this portrait of a woman who was recognizably me. And, and, you know, a shudder ran through me from the top of my skull to the soles of my feet. And very soon, like within a day, I thought, wouldn't it be great to see what I would have looked like in my parallel life earlier. Right. Right. So I started hunting down every photo of between the ages of like 10 and, you know, up to the present. And that became a treasure hunt. I, there aren't huge numbers of photos of me. I was very camera shy. Became this treasure hunt that covered my whole house, basement to attic. I was going through boxes and you know, shopping bags and biscuit tins. And what that did was it broke the self-imposed time restriction that I placed on any transgender mental investigation I'd done before that. And that's what that's what caused the dam to burst. It was able to get past that time restriction. Suddenly I was in free fall, you know, it was crazy. 
it just happened sort of instantaneously, really. I stopped being able to lie to myself. I realized this is the truth about me, and it has been the truth historically forever. So I had no choice but to come out to my shrink, to my partner, to my son, and to my friends, and snowballed from there. Some of those photos are in this book, in the finished book, and I really, I love them. They're just, they're beautiful. And it's remarkable. Yeah. You look happy. I mean, there's this kind of famous photo of you that ran in, you know, the Paris Review and a bunch of other places. And I think it's an old headshot from the 70s. And it just kept, you, you had quite long hair um, and a snarl. It's, it's, it's a photo booth picture. And I'm oh, that's what it is. Okay. Right, right, right. And, and everyone has seen this photo, but it's very sort of tough and, you know, right. edgy. And you just, you look so relaxed in these photos and just sort know, of like, right? And, and I just, I'm so happy they're there. I mean, I'm used to reading your work in the New Yorker Review of Books too. And I've read, I've read your books and you have a very distinct voice on the page. And one of the things you're wrestling with as you go through the story you're telling us is that you were always thinking about what would happen to my identity as a writer. I mean, I'm a writer mm. first. What happens? What happens when my byline changes? What happens to who I am intrinsically? And yet, I mean, I have a measure to compare that. Yes, it's been a minute since I've read Low Life, but I mean, I know when mm -hmm. I'm reading you. And it's, it was wild to me going through this new book and hearing you say, well, I was never comfortable in my own skin, or I knew I had to lock myself down and protect myself because I just couldn't handle who I am. And here you are sort of saying, okay, now I have this physical evidence. I have these photographs that sort of mm. switch it. You kept going. And the timeline, the timeline was surprising to me. I mean, you sort of went from zero to 60 mm -hmm. because it had been 60 years. Yeah. And I'm one of the people who had no idea. I mean, obviously I'm meeting you now for the first time, but I, you know, obviously I've been experiencing your work for, mm -hmm. well, since... 1991. <laughs> well, I mean, nobody in my life had any idea. Nobody. I did not come out to anyone. The only person I ever started coming out to was a great psychotherapist I had in the 80s who just dropped dead one day, 20 minutes after I left his office. So that froze that impulse. But you've opened Pandora's box, as you call mm -hmm. it. You sent an email to friends and family. And Pandora's box is open. And yet, it seems like you really did need the tech. Because also you're talking about how the internet allowed you to sort of see all of the different varieties of transgender life. For the longest time, you thought you were the only person who felt this way, that you, were in the, you had been assigned the wrong gender. And, you know, obviously the world has showed us that that is just not mm -hmm. the case. And I'm sure it has not been the case since long before the internet. Well, I found out like about, you know, Christine Jorgensen, maybe after I considered my transness, not really knowing what it was mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for a good three or four years. Mm -hmm. you know? And that was when I first learned that there were others. Yeah, the Internet also, I mean, just crucially, I mean, this is how ignorant I am. I didn't, I didn't know about hormones. I didn't know what right. they did. You know, right. I thought, you know being transsexual is a matter of 
going to Casablanca and having that operation, you know, I mean, basically it, you know. And yet here you are challenging yourself. I mean, there are plenty of folks who come out much younger than you. There are yeah. people who've also come out in midlife, but you were what, 66, 67? I was 66. Did you ever think you were going to get to this point? I mean, you really, from reading the book, it sounds like you were so locked down that this was just not, and then boom. I kind of did it as a thought experiment in my head a couple of times. And because I know that I gave myself a lecture one day, I don't know how many years ago this was, but like Mm -hmm. 10, 15, 20 years ago, I remember thinking, well, your work is never going to be first rate unless you acknowledge the central contradiction you know basically you can write all the books you want they're going to be very pretty Mm -hmm. but if they don't tell the truth comprehensively it's just not worth the effort maybe it's it becomes decorative art rather than real art so i remember having that thought but being too chicken to pursue it one of the things that I sort of kept wrestling with as I was reading is how lonely it must have been for you. I mean, even with your friends and your family, you were just in a place that it had to have been slightly crippling to be that lonely. I didn't have any friends or any peer, even any peers for big stretches of my youth. I was alone. I was really alone. Um, like multiply alone because I was with these immigrant parents who didn't have a social life and didn't go out into the world. It just completely perverted me in a certain kind of way. And and certainly I was alone with much more than just my trans identity. I mean, right. it was years and years, years and years before I could, I found people I could talk to about books I was reading, you know, mm-hmm. matters of the imagination, you know, all this kind of stuff. And the fact is that, well, here I am, I'm alone again, you know, and I've been living in a town for 16 years, and I know maybe five people in this town. Would you come back to New York? It's been a minute since you've lived in New York. Yeah, it's been 24 years. I keep thinking about this. I mean, New York is just not the same place I lived in. It's become a completely different city. On the other hand, there will come a time as I advance into old age where I won't feel so comfortable with stairs and driving and yeah. i've always wanted to live in a residential hotel you know like the old kind with the uh, bar restaurant downstairs but i don't know new york or some european city maybe because i still i'm you know i'm dual citizen i don't know we'll see oh i didn't realize you still had your belgian citizenship mm-hmm. i mean it was a little complicated your parents moving over. You've said in the past that you felt like you'd moved four times to the United States. And Mm -hmm. once your dad came for a job that didn't happen, and then you had to go back and your grandparents were kind of complicated and whatnot. But I think I forgot you grew up in New Jersey. I don't, I think I always thought of you as like a New Yorker. And I didn't realize there was all that time in New Jersey. No disrespect to New Jersey. I'm not making, it's just, I didn't think of you as a suburban kid i think i've just sort of thought that you organically showed up on the lower east side (laughs) i used to to jokingly say that i moved to the belgium of the united states from the new jersey of europe 
Oh, okay. Because I've never been to Belgium, so I had uh-huh. no idea. Well, it's kind of similar, small annex to the okay. big show, you know. But maybe not everyone knows this, too, that you got a free ride to Colombia. But because of your background, your parents had never sort of explained to you what you do after college, right? So here you are, you have, well, almost got a fancy degree, didn't quite finish the fancy degree, but you were running around with like Jim Jarmusch and Jean-Michel Basquiat and Nan Golden shortly after this experience. But you also kind of needed to figure out what was going on work-wise. And so you were a bookseller, like many of us start out while we're figuring out what's going on. You were a bookseller, you were writing a zine, you end up working for Barbara Epstein at the New York Review of Books, which leads you to reviewing. But you never sort of had the straight shot at becoming the writer and critic that you have become. I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't a clear line, was it? Well, I mean, I'd always I okay. When I was eighteen, I did have to make the choice between writing and visual art, and okay, getting a scholarship to Columbia solved that one. So okay. I went to you know, I decided to be a writer. Mm-hmm. What kind of a writer? Well, I was a poet when I was a teenager, then realized that really, I didn't think in chopped lines. I thought in prose. So I was really a prose writer. What kind of prose writer? I had no idea of what kind of writing I would do. I always thought I'd be a novelist, but I don't really think in terms of story. Right. <laughs> Mike Lee's deal, maybe. Well, it was de- definitely a consequence of working at the New York Review and beginning to write for them when mm-hmm. I was 27 that informed me. Of, you know, I mean, there's a way in which low life was kind of a direct transmission from, say, Patriotic Gore by Edmund Wilson, you know, which is like one of the cornerstone works of the New York Review historically. Mm -hmm. Every time I go to clean out my bookcases to donate, I can't get rid of my New York Review of Books classics. That whole line, it just, the the spines keep increasing and I just, I can't. And I can promise you, I did not need a second copy of Flaubert and Bovary, the Francis <laughs> Mueller. But the copy I had used to belong to my dad, and the paper was getting funky, and it just smelled really bad. I was like, you know what? I actually kind of want to read a little bit of this again, and I need a copy that just doesn't smell terrible, which is ridiculous. <laughs> but there you have it. But I went back, and I read your Elvis review. That was uh, the first thing. you And... It makes perfect sense to me that you did this review because obviously music has always been a big part. You've written about Patti Smith in the past. and But this Elvis review, can we talk about this for a second? Do you even remember? Like, I mean, it was 1981. I know I'm asking you about a review from a thousand years yeah. ago, but it sounds like it's still pretty fresh for you because you were like, oh, this is what I want to do. Can we just talk about that evolution for a second? Well, in that case, you know, it was partly about, I was not a big Elvis fan, but of course, all, all respect. But it galled me to, I mean, it's when I first started thinking really about the lie detector properties of prose. I mean, the way you can read character into prose. I was reading this text by Albert Goldman, and it was just a succession of red flags going up one mm-hmm. after the other. It was, he was not telling the truth about any of it, pretty much. The tissue of lies. So that's, the, you know, I had my job cut out for me. Part of why I set us up with talking about that review a little bit, too, and having you talk about sort of the tissue of lies and this lie detector property of writing is here you are doing this work and you're interrogating art and you're interrogating narratives that people are setting up for us. And yet, I mean, you even call yourself out 
in, I heard her call my name where you say, well, I'm being a bit of a hypocrite because here I am, you know, trying to tell the truth about other people and I can't even do it for myself and I'm not even holding up my own ethics. Bingo. It was wild to me reading that. I mean, here you're really leaving everything. Pardon the bad sports metaphor for two seconds, but it is kind of the best one I have. You're leaving everything on the field in this book, Lucy. I mean, mm-hmm. there's, you're sharing all of the stuff that is challenging to you, but especially because your primary identity is as a writer who wants to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. That's the piece that I kept coming back to. I mean, beautiful sentences aside and, you know, things that you share a lot and I appreciate all of it. But at the same time, I was like, wow. All of that time, all of those days and weeks and months and years that you didn't want to talk about it. You're here now. Yep. <laughs> You're here yeah. now. I mean, it's got to be a little bit of a relief. Yeah. I mean, I understand that oh, it's got to be yeah. scary and intimidating, but it has, there has to be some relief that comes it's, with saying. You know, well, no. I mean, it's not scary or intimidating, okay. really. Um, okay. It's actually a huge relief. And, okay. um I feel good. I like myself most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I did, it is very lonely um, because I know so few trans people. Mm-hmm. Um, and generally the ones I know, with a few exceptions, the ones I know are 40 years younger than I am. And so yeah. it's a world I can't really penetrate. I'm forever doomed to be a satellite. When people have these attacks of imposter syndrome, right. vis-a-vis gender, when trans people have that, They call it dysphoria. I mean, gender dysphoria is the umbrella term, but attack of dysphoria. And, well, I just spent yesterday having one all day long. It's tough. But at the same time, there's this bedrock sense that, what am I going to do at this point? Go back to being a man? That's not going to work. It didn't really work the first time, in fact. You know? I mean, there was. I found myself, especially early on in my transition, I was thinking, you know, as fearing for my love life ever after, I was really kind of wishing that I were transitioning in the opposite direction. I was really becoming a guy, which I'd never really been, you know, because at least that way I could attract a woman, you know, I mean, it's crazy because my, you know, my relationship of 14 years, I mean, we're still very, very close, but the romantic part of it, was the casualty of all this. But you do talk about the 24-year-old who, wait, Mm. am I saying this right? She's your trans mother, in a way? Yeah, well, that's that's kind of our joke. Oh, sorry, okay, sorry. No, no, but I mean, you know, in the sense that, like, uh, for example, in um, the houses, you know, the the ballroom houses, there's always a mother, you know? Um, And so it's kind of my, my, my conceit that, but it's actually true, though. That's the crazy thing, is I learned so much from her, mm-hmm. from Leor. She taught me so much and gave me courage. She was a trans woman who I could not, absolutely not, think of as a freak. And the fact that, you know, walking with her on the street, for example, it was contagious. It was a remarkable gift. And I'm not sure I would have survived my first year mm-hmm. without her. But I also love the idea that you at 66 could look to a then 24-year-old yeah. and say, hey, wait a minute, I haven't got the first clue. I think there are so many narratives that come up 
you know, certainly with gender identity, but also, you know, race and sexuality. There's so many things. And it's just the idea that you can have this exchange of ideas with someone who is two thirds your age. Sorry to do the math. You know what it reminded me of? What? Um, I worked in factories when I was beginning when I was a teenager. I worked in two factories. One of the standard rules of operation in the factory was that the last hire teaches the new hire because the lessons are fresh in their mind. Uh, the old people have internalized everything so much you can begin to explain it. So that was kind of the principle there, too. I like that, though. I just, it crosses class. It crosses yeah. gender. It crosses. I mean, you're having to make a new community, right? Writers are always going to be your primary tribe, without yeah, a doubt. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, here you are trying to balance these very primary identities, right? And you even say it in the book. You're like, this has always been the question. Who am I? Yeah. Who am I? And so to see you sort of working it out on the page... And also as a person with a long torso, yes, like there is stuff we cannot wear. Okay, straight. I'm glad you discovered that early because there is some stuff I'm like, whoa, yeah. that is, <laughs> I'm, all, I'm all torso and have very short legs for my height. So <laughs> it's, you learn, you learn yeah. very, very, very quickly. <laughs> I know, but, my lessons come every day. Yeah, but you're doing it sort of really in the open, and I mean, there was the piece in Vanity Fair, which I think is excerpted from this book, or did it? Did it come in the reverse? You wrote no, the piece no, first. Uh, I wrote that. I wrote that when I'd been transitioning for less than six months, and it was based on the letter that I sent out to people right away, my friends, and which I quote in full in the oh, yeah. In this book. Yeah, I do love that letter though, and I think it's a great way to open. The memoir. I didn't know if you were going to make us wait because, I mean, obviously it's a deeply personal thing. So I didn't know where it was going to come. And then I start reading and I'm like, oh, okay, we're here. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> but there was a second letter that you decided not to send. We're with you the entire time as you were working out a lot of very personal thinking early on and where you mm -hmm. suddenly say, oh, no, well, I can't go back to being a man, but now I'm not sure. And yet, it seems like that was just you sort of snapping your head for a second because you really did know and you really thought, uh, we set limits in ways that maybe people are not designed to have limits, you know, and you're, and we can see you wrestling through this yeah. on the page. So can we talk about the physical writing? I mean, obviously, there's this great Vanity Fair piece, which mm -hmm. I'm really fond of the voice in that is great. And that voice carries through, obviously, the book. But you've, you've got this essay, you've got the letter that you've written, you've got the second letter. But also, you were not a big keeper of diaries or journals because also when you were young, your mom would go through everything, which I'm so sorry. But how do you construct this narrative? Well, I realized right away that the whole book couldn't just be about my transition. You know, I'd already written that piece, for one thing. Furthermore, I needed to contextualize my transition. And, well, gee whiz, it turns out my life is ripe for contextualizing because <laughs> <laughs> you have the immigrant experience, you right. know, uh, all these. Or, and, you know, my whole history with my difficulties with the educational process. 
my becoming a you know child bohemian my eventual ascension into the ranks of published writers you know mm-hmm. all this learning stuff but it was almost in- instantaneous really i didn't search for it the template of the um two intersecting timelines it's not a suspense novel trick you know and builds interest it's a mechanism and um and it was a mechanism for me writing too i've never written anything in my life the way i've written this book it probably it's hard to estimate exactly but it probably took me about two months i was writing literally morning noon and night which i never do you know except maybe in the like the last two chapters of big books or something like that it's it was crazy i couldn't not be writing mostly it was a straight shot i mean i did very little backing and filling i just it Mm -hmm. was just i was writing it as it came out and maybe in the second pass i took out some words but that's about it it's really kinetic the energy is really kinetic in this book it's really it's for a memoir especially it's wildly propulsive which isn't necessarily because obviously the nature of a memoir right and it's a writer right you're a writer writing about being a writer as a big chunk of this book and you know hi welcome to my head (laughs) welcome to the interior of my brain i'm going to lay everything out for you exactly but i'm not at all surprised to hear that you wrote it really quickly and also the structure, I mean, Griel Marcus years ago described you as a hard-boiled writer, right? Just stylistically. I mean, and the, the clip of your sentences, right? Mm-hmm. And, and just word choices and things like that. There's a little bit of a swing and there's a lot of slang that, you know, I guess maybe it's sort of the 50s and the 60s, but you've sort of pulled back into Lucy Sant. I, mm-hmm. I just think of it as you, right? And, and you on the page. But all of these pieces, it's like it's, there's just such a clear through line between the criticism and the writing of the books and like even evidence, right? Like, which is a book I hadn't really thought about in a really long time until I was prepping for this interview. And all of the photographs that you combed through to create that book, like you've always been kind of a multimedia writer oh, yeah, totally. for me. Like you were a little ahead of your time. Well, I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be an artist. But mm-hmm. I went to Columbia, but also I was colorblind. Um, oh, I, I think make, I didn't know that. I wanted to make music, but really I wanted to sing and I was too shy. And I wanted to be a filmmaker until I was Jim Jarmusch's roommate while he was in film school. And I realized <laughs> that to be a film director, you have to be an, an army general. And I wasn't prepared to do that. I just don't have the personality type for that. So, you know, the musician, the painter and the filmmaker all there in my head when I'm writing all the time you know and I know Patty Smith was sort of she was one of the creatives who blew your mind early on Mm -hmm. and you've written about this multiple times but the idea that she's here she is being Patty Smith you know before she was Patty Smith but I want to talk about some of the women that you've sort of I don't want to say modeled yourself on it's not it's not that but you talk about how like these women who are trailblazers right or they're Mm -hmm alone in a way mm-hmm. right like sometimes you make sacrifices in one thing or another to excel in the thing that you really want to excel but it's kind of a great list it runs from eartha kitt to joan Tidian to jean moreau to mary tyler moore and i'm smiling as i'm thinking about this list because it just is i mean you kind of are a woman of your era but at the same time like it runs the gamut but you did also wrestle with the idea of what you who you were going to be 
oh, as yeah. a woman, right? Yeah. And and so you're pulling all of these different ideas, which is like what teenagers do too. I mean, it makes perfect right. sense. Right. It's my mood board. Yeah. Okay, mood board. I like that. <laughs> mood board. But I do I want to talk about your mood board because you are you're pulling from the visual arts, you're pulling from film, you're pulling from writing in all of these different places. And but you've been doing it all along, right? I mean, most of your friends were women for the longest time. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, pretty much. I mean, beginning, at least beginning in my mid-20s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's absolutely true. And you know what? Elizabeth Hardwick is one of those. And I didn't realize you and Daryl Pinkney had known each other for forever and a day. And he's kind of fun to read, too. Is that how you met Elizabeth? Through Daryl? Yes, okay. exactly. And by the way, Daryl published a memoir last year. And I see our memoirs as really being like, you know, matching parentheses or something like that. I mean, he's as much in my memoirs, I'm in his memoir. And, you know, we're very different people. But, you know, we're like very tight at the same time. But you're both writers for? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I meet a lot of folks who are, you know, working on new projects or, you know, want to be writers and that, that. And then the people I know who are working writers, <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, I do a thing. I do a thing. I'm going to go do my thing. And, mm. and maybe I get something out of it. I mean, obviously, you knew this particular piece was going to be a book. But I want to talk about some of the other ones, too, because you do have a tendency to pick the unexpected, right? Like... Low life, I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to give this a whirl. What is this? And I could not put it down. And it's just this very weird history of weird bits of New York. And the narrative really holds. And at the time, you know, part of it is, well, really the case was low life and and my Paris book especially. Mm -hmm. I wrote books that I would want to read. Yeah, okay. And, you know, I remember like, this is a very sensitive period in New York's history when I sort of started engaging with that stuff. It was toward the late 80s. And I had an idea, like, it was called in my mind, A History of the Slums. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, somebody's written that for sure. But nobody had written it. And then, for the 10th anniversary, you write a new introduction, which I have read. <laughs> and it's a little baggy, my friend. You are correct when you say it's a little baggy. And then Barbara Epstein at the New York Review says, yeah, I'll publish it, but you have to cut it. By two-thirds. Yeah, okay, by two-thirds, which it was a little baggy. It was great. It set me free. That I learned so much in that one exercise. And that's part of how I feel like we got to the new book. Mm-hmm. Because it is tighter than a lot of what you've written. Mm-hmm. Because even Factory of Facts, I mean, you're playing, and I'm really thinking about that opening where you're like, here are 19 different versions of how my life could have gone. Right. But this, I'm not sure we would have gotten to this exact book as we have it. I heard her call my name. That's Without that exercise of you being told, <laughs> you've got to learn to pare it down. And, you know, to be completely nerdish about this, I mean, the mm-hmm. music that I was hearing in my head when I wrote Factory of Facts was very, a very poor choice on my part because it was Speak Memory by Nabokov. Oh. Nobody should really ever be directly influenced by Nabokov. He's fabulous, but he's. You have to be a white Russian born in the 19th century. It cannot be done otherwise. This book, though, I this is an obscure reference, but it's a novel by Maurice Blanchot called The Madness of the Day, translated mm-hmm. by Lydia Davis, came out in the early 90s. You know, it's like recognizing a melody. I've written this, like, song, and 
I know the melody or the rhythm at least, something about it comes from this place and it's that book. It's very, it's like a 65 page novella. <laughs> okay, now I want to go hunt it down because also I quite liked Lydia Davis's Madame Bovary translation and mm -hmm. Bovary is yeah. a novel that I have issues with, okay? I have issues with Bovary and I will totally admit that I have issues with that book. But I like Lydia Davis's translation. Mm -hmm. Like I just great it, it connected me, and obviously I'm not reading Bovary in the original French, but nonetheless, I <laughs> I would like to enjoy the thing that I'm reading, even if the subject matter is tricky, or even if you know I'm reading something that not everyone has a happy ending, whatever. I just I would like the sentences to be gorgeous. Can I please have beautiful sentences? Which obviously I get with you. I mean, do you think this is setting a new tone? for the work that's going to come. I mean, you, you reviewed Hua Xu's memoir, Stay True, which is a book I mm -hmm. love. But I feel like I haven't seen your bylines so much recently, and I feel like that means you're cooking something new. This year marks the year when I have retired from teaching uh, and also retired from freelancing to the extent that I can afford to do so now. Okay. I just want to write books, and I have well, my next book is, you know, as part of my two-book contract. And then I have another book that I'm ready to leap into. And then a third book, which is a big mystery even to me. Um, but that's the situation right now. You know, just before last year, I, well, 2022, I um, published um, my Reservoirs book. And that's the question I've gotten from interviewers is, how weird that you wrote a book about the New York reservoir system and then you go to writing, writing this gender transition memoir. How weird is that? And I pointed out that, you know, well, I mean, there's a whole backstory to why and how and when I, when I wrote that book. But the key fact is that I've written about everywhere I've lived. I have a strong set of sense of place. And I've been living up here for, you know, a quarter of a century and I'd never written about it. Yeah, I actually didn't think it was weird. I just thought, oh, Lucy has an interest. Lucy's going to write a book. I mean, that's sort of how I've approached reading your work. It's just like, okay, I'll follow you. Because, <laughs> I, you. yes, you're right. Story is maybe not the thing I think of first when I think. But the pleasure I get from your work comes from your approach. And sort of, you have this sort of sly, little bit of a nod, a little bit of a wink. Yeah, Grail Marcus in the hard-boiled piece, too. But it is the cadence of the language, and it is and it is absolutely your point of view, where you're kind of like, well, is it art, or is it craziness, or is this humanity, or is it art? I feel like you're always circling this idea of what's art, what's performance. Mm. Like the way you mm. talk about how you had to perform your life before you transitioned, you were like, I was always performing. But then again, it was like the early 70s in New York. Like, was anyone not performing? I mean, yeah. please, I've seen the photos. <laughs> it's wild. It's completely wild. But absolutely place with you, without a doubt. I mean, certainly New York and Paris, but also Belgium. home. Yeah, but home. Like Belgium, but home as an idea and a concept, right? Yeah. Like... That seems like something that was always that you were wrestling with. Your mom was really complicated. Oh, your mom had a really rough go. Do you feel like you have peace with your parents? I mean, they're both obviously long dead at this point, but now that you've been able to write this book, do you feel like you have peace? 
It's a kind of exorcism. It really is. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, I stayed angry at my mother in particular for a long time after her death, even. I thought death would make the peace, but it didn't happen. But I think this may have done it. I hope so. I mean, honestly, I just want to read the next book and the book after that and the book after that. Can we also talk about other influences? Because again, I've mentioned that you have run with artists and filmmakers and other writers for a long time. But in terms of the writing itself, it feels like there are a number of sort of, do I call it postmodern French novelists? I guess I do. But like Kathy Acker is also someone that you, whose work you really loved for a long time. Mm-hmm. So yeah. can we just sort of do a tour through your bookcases for a second? Oh and God, how we got to Lucy. <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually trying to read the spines. This is just what we've done on the show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a little bit. But in terms of how we got Lucy as a writer, mm-hmm. like who were, who were some of those? And obviously not Nabokov intentionally, but. Right. Oh boy. I mean, there's so many, right? I was a poet. Mm-hmm. Rambo blew my mind at the yeah. age of 13. And then the New York School of Poets especially. John Ashbery, Frank O'Hara, Kenneth Koch, and, and then the second and third generations. And then working for the New York Review, um, that rather, you know, well, it was a very interesting mix of radicalism and conservatism there. Mm-hmm. Uh, very conservative in, like, literary table manners, but radical in substance. You know, that very, affected me very much. Um, how to do a good job, basically, you know, which in an essayistic tradition goes back to like Macaulay or Hazlitt. And then um, all kinds of modern writing uh, all through the 20th and even taking many steps into the 21st century. In terms of memoirists, um, well, one person who I've, I, I mean, discovered completely by accident, in a, you know, bookstore in Paris, I was buying a book to read on the plane. And that's how I started reading Emmanuel Carrère. He's made some incredibly foolish moves in his books, and I've chided him <laughs> for it in print. But he's still a very, very interesting writer. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm he's one of, the, one of those memoirists where I'm not entirely sure how conscious he is of the effect his words will have, you know. And also, for that matter, as you were talking before, I was remembering a detail in the book, which is it's a uh, class I took with my girlfriend, her ex-boyfriend, my ex-girlfriend, and her new boyfriend. We were all in this class called 19, uh, Autobiography in the 19th Century. Okay. And it begins with, well, it begins before the 19th century with Augustine and then Rousseau. And then all these British guys from the 19th century, all British, all guys. Um, and it, they're a remarkable bunch of books, you know. And in fact, my working title for this one is, I, was, I knew I was going to publish it under this title. My working title was Apologia Pro Vita Sua, Apology for One's Own Life, which is uh, John Henry Cardinal Newman's memoir. There are echoing effects, even though that class occurred many, many, many years ago. And I'm not even sure I still own any of those books now, but um, they left their mark. Yeah, occasionally I have to buy new copies of things when I'm 
prepping for a show because, you know, time and tiny New York apartments, things happen. And uh, every now and again, it's, it's kind of wild. I mean, one, the jacket treatments usually get at least a little better, if not different. But every now and again, you have to go and stuff goes out of fashion and you just, it doesn't exist anymore, like, or it only exists as an E and, you know, fine. It's just, it's funny to think that something that was seminal at one point in your life, you're kind of like, I can't even find it. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Well, in my case, it was because it. I was so happy to be out of school. I got rid of anything that was a textbook. Or not everything, everything, but most things. A little bit hubristic on my part. Where do you think you go next? I mean, I know you've said you're going to write books now and freelancing and the teaching, and it just it frees up so much space. I mean, is the thing you're not talking about possibly a novel? I mean, you've talked about wanting to write fiction. That may have something to do with my project X. Okay. My next next book, part of the second part of my contract is a book about the Velvet Underground and their place in the New York of the 1960s, which is, I've always wanted to write about New York in the 1960s and all these worlds that intersected that seem like a vast population, but may have only totaled a few hundred people. But also, with New York's beyond this, you know, art bohemia, et cetera, right. world, it was just New York as it was. Then. And uh, a place that I first excitedly experienced when I was very young, um, and then started going to high school and starting in 68. Um, so that's the next book. And after that, I want to write a book about writing. Yeah. And then there's Project X. Okay. We can be patient. We can be patient. I think it's the craft. I mean, certainly I'm waiting with bated breath for the New York book. That is the one that I'm just like, hello. But the craft book is a really good idea, too, because you just have a really distinct style. And I really appreciate it. Like, it's that high-low thing in a single sentence. And it's really hard to do well. I mean, there are plenty of people who do the absolute, like, I will give you the perfect sentence kind of thing. Mm. And then there are people who are like, well, I'm going to give you the big feeling and the sentence is going to be really sloppy. And you're like, well, guess what? (laughs) And I feel like everything you do has a wink and a nod to it. I mean, maybe I'm wrong about that, but that that's how it's always felt to me where you're like, did you notice? Did you Mm. see what I, it's not like you're looking for approval. It's more like if you get it, you get it. Right. And that's, in all of your books, right? And it's really here. It's really super present. And I heard her call my name because you're just like, okay, I'm giving you Belgium and I'm giving you New Jersey and I'm giving you Columbia and I'm giving you the girlfriend that moved to San Francisco. And I'm also giving you the pieces of myself that I've been doubting and questioning. And yet you can still, in a way, do it with a wink and a nut. I mean, you sent a letter on someone's birthday and you were like, I have no idea why I did that. (laughs) And the reader was saying, oh, you did that. Mm. but you owned it yeah. you didn't leave anything out and this is not a very long book yeah this is this is like a third of the length of little <laughs> it was it's so short they had i wanted the photographs to appear just like in the middle of the text like like sebald in fact that's what really oh, yeah, yeah. my text was so short that to get it to a certain like required page count they had to mm. put many of them as full page blow-ups you know? <laughs> Well, I'm glad we hit the page count. I think the photos matter. I just, I think in terms of the experience, 
of reading your story and how you set it up. The photos really matter. And but again, it's not the first time you've used photos in your work. No, I just I, uh, I they're just they're beautiful. They're really beautiful. Photos are really in important. Almost all my books. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I knew this was going to happen and I knew we were going to bump up against time. And yes, time's a construct, whatever. But more importantly, <laughs> you do have books to write. So before I let you go, though, I'm wondering if when you were writing, I heard her call my name. Were you writing solely for yourself or were you thinking about readers when you were writing this book? Because it is so personal and not just for the obvious reasons, but also, I mean, I've sort of alluded to it throughout this conversation that there's there is a lot where you hold yourself accountable mm-hmm. that maybe not everyone would, or at least not publicly in a book that anyone could read. So I'm just wondering how you sort of approach that, or if it's changed from book to book even, like how you think about your readership. Well, you know, that 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 truthfulness is really an outcome of my writing process, because I'm constantly holding up every sentence and asking, is this the truth? Am I fronting? Am I grandstanding? Am I prevaricating? Am I leaving something out? Every single sentence I write for any book or any article, whatever. The other thing is, no, I wasn't, I certainly wasn't writing strictly for myself. With any book, as I'm writing, I'm imagining a whole variety of people taking it in. I mean, that's my chorus of critics I keep in my head, Mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm imagining, you know, various personality types, people I know, People I barely know but can imagine, etc. Furthermore, with this book, I mean, I was really writing it with the idea of speaking to people, especially, well, you know, I've one thing since coming out is I haven't met very many trans people, but I've met a whole lot of parents of trans people, people my age who have children who are trans. And it's been great talking to them. But I'm also, you know, I mean, I'm always hoping to. Really, my ideal reader is the, uh, you know, 15-year-old version of myself. And I want to give them encouragement. And I, and I want to tell their parents that, you know, look at me. I mean, I knew at age nine. It yeah. wasn't some will-o'-the-wisp that was going to fly away in a few years. And it wasn't influenced by media. It came from within. I actually, I'm talking my through my hat here, but I actually think it's not a psychological phenomenon at all. I think it's a physiological phenomenon. But anyway rabbit hole that way also i want to make a point about i didn't want to make it too much of a point because i don't know how far the metaphor would really extend but it seemed to me that there was an eerie resemblance between transitioning as transgender and the kind of transitioning i did as a kid being rapidly acculturated in america as an immigrant you know there are similar kinds of education there's so so, so much in this memoir. Lucy Sant, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. I heard her call my name is out now. And of course, you can find all of Lucy's books on the shelves too. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Mary Watt. This is great. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.